You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We've um, come this morning to one of the uh, greatest paragraphs, I think, in in the New Testament, um, verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1. It's, it's an extraordinary paragraph because it, it has this uh, capacity, I think, to overwhelm the, the finest biblical scholar and at the same time just to humble uh, the most ordinary believer um, as Paul talks about the glory of Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And uh, I want to take a couple of weeks uh, to look at it together. So we're just going to look at verses 15 through 18 this morning, and next week we'll look at verses 19 and 20. The first part of this, verses 15 through 18, I think describes the supremacy of Christ and the latter part, the sufficiency of Christ. When we're studying through any book of the Bible or any letter like this of Paul, we're trying to piece together from what he has written uh, to what might have been going on. In the, in the congregation there at Colossae. It's kind of a fundamental principle of Bible study, whatever, if you're reading the Bible throughout the week and studying it, we have to first find out what the letter meant for them at Colossae before we can find out what it means for us. Those two things are not uh, pitted against one another. Paul is not just writing here random thoughts, uh, random words. He's got a very purposeful, intentional aim behind his words. For example, verses 3 through 14, Paul's prayer, I think he's been touching on concerns that have been troubling the Colossians. Have we heard the true gospel? Are we true believers? Um, We don't know for sure as to what precipitated that. It may have been that there were some people, maybe some false teachers in the church that were coming alongside and saying, you know what, Uh, just that one gospel is not enough Uh, You really have to have a little bit more. You're not quite uh, in the fullness of Christ, and you need uh, uh, to have some more. And so Paul is addressing that, I think. Paul is praying for them in verse 9 that they may be filled, he writes, with the knowledge of the will of God. And we talked about how he's, he's praying for them, the will of God that is in Christ in whom all fullness is found. He's telling them you don't have to look for another gospel and another savior, Christ is enough. And verse 12, Paul writes, they have been qualified by Christ for heaven. Verse 13, through Christ they have redemption and salvation, or excuse me, verse 13, they've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Verse 14, they they've, have redemption in Christ, salvation, forgiveness of sins. Uh, how do you even quantify the blessing that's bound up in those three statements alone as to what Christ has done for us? It's like Paul here is throwing down the gauntlet a little bit to whoever is maybe uh, whispering these, under, undermining the gospel He's, uh, and, and telling them that there's something more that is to unite us or something more that is to inspire us or something more is needed for, to fulfill us and to help us. Um, Paul is saying, no, we have Christ. And then here, he kind of goes nuclear on them. Uh, Let me tell you about who this Jesus is 
and why he is so adequate for everything in your life. Here's what he writes, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Lord, please open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. And may we never be the same. And as I preach, I pray that he would increase and I would decrease. That your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when the disciples were in a boat and a storm came up and threatened their lives. And you remember Jesus was taking a nap on the stern. He was on a cushion sleeping during this storm. They were bailing water from the boat because they were sinking, uh, rowing with all of their might. They wake him up and they say to him, "Uh, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And you remember what happened. Jesus woke up and he... The Bible says he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And immediately the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But it's the next verse that always gets me because the disciples said to one another, they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's not the only encounter that happened. Jesus healed the, Luke chapter 5, he healed the body of a, a paralytic man, and he forgave his sins. And the Pharisees who were there that day in the hearing of this, they said, Luke 5, 21, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's the very same thing. Who is this man? As reports were spreading throughout the land, word reached King Herod, Luke chapter 9 verse 9, Herod said this, John, speaking of John the Baptist, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, that's the day we celebrate, we'll celebrate soon on Palm Sunday, the reaction of the crowd, Matthew 21 verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? There's no question, perhaps, as profound and fundamental and and eternally significant than this question, who is this, Jesus? And and perhaps a follow-up question, do you know him? After praying that the Colossians might be filled with this knowing, this knowledge of God's will, which is to know Christ, who he is, what he's done for them, in order that they might live a life worthy for him. Paul pulls back the curtain kind of momentarily to allow us the glimpse of who this man Jesus really is. 
If you just scan the passage for a moment, if you were just doing a Bible study and looking for a different repetition of words, you'll notice the re- repetition of the phrase, he is. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is, by default, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. He is the beginning. This is about who he is. And notice, secondly, the repetition of the word all, which just fills the passage. Verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, all things created through him. Verse 17, he's before all things. In him all things hold together. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, he's reconciling himself to all things. It's as if Paul is saying, who Jesus is, is all that you need in life. Who Jesus is, is is sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for purpose and direction. It's, 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 It's all you need for holiness. Jesus is both supreme. He is, and he is both sufficient for your life. We're just going to talk about the supremacy of Jesus this this morning. Notice Paul notes first, he is supreme in eternity. In eternity. The first thing Paul declares is the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. He is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God. He's the image. The word image is the word icon uh, from where we get our word, English word, icon, but it means likeness or, or copy, if you will. Sometimes it meant an, an imprint on a coin or a reflection in a mirror. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the perfect image and the exact likeness of God. Now, the Bible teaches that God is invisible. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God. This is perhaps one of the questions that a, a mom or dad will eventually get from one of their young children. What does God look like, daddy? And before you crawl under the table and think, oh my goodness, call Pastor Jason. Part of the answer to that is that God is invisible, right? He's spirit. But an even greater answer to that question, Paul gives us here. The answer is to point them to Jesus Christ. He is the image, he says, of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's interesting Paul uses the word image. It takes us back to the very beginning. Uh, you all been studying Genesis 1. 26 and 27, where it says that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. We were created to reflect something of the glory of our maker, to reflect his image. But from Genesis 3 onward, you might say we've done a very poor job at doing that. We've not reflected. We've been defiled by sin at every point in our lives. But here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, can say about Jesus without any qualification, without the slightest bit of exaggeration, that if you look at Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the 
perfect realization of humanity. He is God in the flesh. He's the exact image of God himself. In fact, if you look down, just a sneak peek to next week, verse 19, it says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He repeats that, chapter 2, verse 9, in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson puts it like this, all of the holiness of the Father is in the Son. All of the sovereignty of the Father is in the Son. All of the truth All of the power, all of the immutability, all of the grace, all of the mercy that is in the Father is also in the Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. In fact, Jesus would later say to Philip, one of his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the eternal God. Now you say, well, what in the world does that have any... Relevance to my life, well, it has a ton to do with our lives. First of all, it means that Jesus was more than just an ordinary man. He's not less than a man, but he is certainly more than a man. He is not just another religious teacher. He's not just one among many prophets and religious leaders in the history of our world. Paul says, no, he is the eternal God in the flesh. That means also that Jesus' word, it's not just any word. We're not here today to to quibble about whether Jesus was right or wrong on his words or what he says. No, when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of God because he is God. His word is not optional. It's just not up to subject to our opinions or, or up to our debates. You and I, we sit under his judgment. We are called to submit to him. And because he is God, it also means that the work Jesus did for us on the cross uh, has an extraordinary value. He was, this was not just a man. We're not celebrating today when we take the Lord's Supper that Jesus was just another man dying for another man. That's a, that, that would be a wonderful thing. But this is the God-man dying for sinners like you and me. Because Jesus is the image of God. He was what we were meant to be, like we were created to be in terms of our character. He lived the Christian life we could not live. And then he went to that cross as the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place, atoning for our sins, redeeming us from our sin, and rising again on the third day for our justification. This is why Jesus Christ is supreme in eternity. And beloved, we ought to give him the first place in everything. That's not all. Secondly, notice he is supreme in creation. He's supreme in creation. This is Paul's point, I think, the end of verse 15 all the way through 17. He describes four ways that Christ is supreme in creation. First, he is the climax of creation. Verse 15, at the end, Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That can be a bit confusing. That does not mean that Jesus was the first created thing. You understand the problem with using that language and believing that. The Jehovah's Witness, by the way, teach that. They teach that Jesus was the first created 
person, the first person ever created, and that Jesus is a created being. If Jesus was created a being, then he is not the son of God. He is not possessing the very eternal nature of God. And what they're doing there is they're ignoring the rest of the verses, as we're going to see, which clearly describes Jesus as the creator of everything. What does Paul mean, firstborn, then? Well, he's speaking there in terms of importance, of priority. Uh, he is giving the, he's saying that the highest honor belongs to Jesus Christ. The, the Son, by virtue of being the image of God, has preeminence. He exercises sovereignty over everything that exists. In Psalm 89, verse 27, God said this about King David. He said, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That helps us to understand how Paul is using this word. God is not telling David, who was not the firstborn of his brothers, way down the line. In fact, the last, he's not telling him, I'm going to move you. He's just saying, no, I'm going to make you the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the way the word is being used here. Jesus Christ is utterly unique from all of creation. He is distinguished from all of creation. He is the highest, you see. And secondly, notice... He is the agent of creation. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. Notice those prepositions. By Him all things were created through Him. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. Everything that has been created was created by Christ Himself, by His creative Word. You could say even that Christ is the one who was there speaking in Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light. Christ spoke all things into existence. Remember, John told us this in John chapter 1. In the beginning, he writes, was the Word. He's using that to describe Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The same thing Paul is saying here in Colossians 1. Jesus made all things. He made all things in heaven and earth. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Sun, moon, stars, galaxies, far as you can think about in your mind, to everything you can see on this planet, visible and invisible, plants, animals, all the way down to molecules, if you will, and atoms and all of those different things, gravity, thrones or dominions, he says, rulers or authorities, that is earthly king kingdoms, that is spiritual kingdoms, angels, all things, he writes, were created through him. Jesus is the agent of creation. Third, he is the goal of creation. It's found in that little phrase at the end of verse 16, and for him. All things were created through him, and it says, for him. Now, that's a bit of a shocker today if you walked in and thought all things were created for you. No, for him. It's all his. 
whatever exists today exists for Christ. Everything began with Him, and it will all end with Him. He is the beginning and the end. All things came about at His command. All things will return to Him at His command. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Sam Storms put it like this. He is the reason. He is the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end. I don't have enough fingers. The terminus, the consummation, the culmination of every molecule in this universe that He might be glorified and praised and enjoyed forever. Paul said it like this in Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. One day, everything will give him glory. Now, how in the world is it that we can read this and think about this, what is being declared here, and never get confused that this is somehow about us? And our glory. As one writer put it, God did not create the world so that He could have you. He created the world so that you could have Him. Don't get that backward. So that we could find the greatest joy in the universe as we reorient our lives away from ourselves and toward Him. J. Vernon McGee, many of you still listen some to his radio program. He once said this. He said, friends, this is God's universe, and so you're going to have to do things God's way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have your own universe to do it in, he said. McGee goes on, he says, just go and create your own universe. Come up with your own rules and run it the way that you want to. But until then, he says... This is God's universe. You're in God's universe. You're on God's planet. You're breathing God's air. You're drinking God's water. This universe and whatever else exists owes all of its existence to God. Christ. Fourth, he says, he is the sustainer of creation. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold Together, Notice that he existed before all things. He is eternal. He is creator. He says it again. Then having created all things, he says, I want you to know he continues to hold all things together. Hebrews 1 uh, verse 3 says something similar. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Very word that he used to create everything. That very word sustains the creation that has been made. That's fantastic to think about, isn't it? You know what is keeping the earth on its rotation right now? Do, do you know what's keeping the, uh, on its axis? Uh, do, do you know what's keeping the, the laws of gravity working? And, and thermal dynamics and inertia and all those other things? That, do you know what's keeping all of those physical laws going? You know who it is? Jesus is, the Bible says. Apart from his continuous sustaining of this, everything would disintegrate. What a thought. 
you know, again, it starts to beg the, the, the question here. If, if we're truly understanding what he's saying here, why in the world would we ever look for, to anybody else for meaning and purpose and salvation? Do we, do we not believe that he knows what is best for our lives? Will we somehow doubt that his word is true? Do we not think that he knows what's best for our church and how to be the church? Do you think that, that he is not qualified to tell us what is right and wrong from his word? That we know more because we're smarter? Do we not think that he knows what is best to fix our broken, messed up lives and marriages and relationships and problems? My goodness. Every heartbeat, every flutter of your eyelid, every step that you take and every breath that you take is sustained by Christ. That's what he's saying. Even those of you who are listening to this and you've yet to confess him as Lord and Savior, he's sustaining you. Which again begs the question, who do you think you are? Not submitting to this God. Don't you see why coming to trust him is so significant? You, you see why Paul says about this message, verse 5, that, that about Christ, this is the word of truth, that it is a word, verse 6, that impacts the whole world. Indeed, he's going to say, verse 23, all creation under heaven, all creation is accountable to him. And so are you and me. We must submit to him as our Lord and Savior. Well, third, Paul says, he's also supreme in church. This is verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Our memory verse. And when we read that, there's no doubt that the word head has an element of being over something, you know, that he is sovereign over creation, he's the head of it, he's sovereign over the church. But there's more to that word head there, uh, I think, that Paul means. When we, when we come to Christ, he often uses that metaphor that we're brought into the body of Christ, with whom Christ is the head of that body, right? Romans 12, 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And the, the idea of that is that we are totally dependent on the head. You know this today, you, you cannot live without your head, right? I mean, you may have moments where you lose your head, you know what I mean? You're not going to lose, it's like, you don't have any head, you're not living. You're kind of dependent on that. And, and that's the picture, I think, he's telling us here, that we are dependent on Christ. You, you separate a church body from its head, and it becomes this lifeless institution. 
and not a living body as it's meant to be. I think Paul shares the same idea when he writes there. Secondly, he's the beginning, the firstborn from, a, from the dead. Again, that word firstborn does not mean Jesus was the first one to ever resurrect from the dead. That's not true. There were others in the Bible that resurrected. But this means first in importance. He was the most important of all people who was raised from the dead because through his resurrection, we will rise again. He's saying that Jesus is the author of life. He gives new life in the Spirit to all of God's people. Even our bodies, when we die, will be resurrected, those in faith in Jesus Christ. So the emphasis of this verse is that Christ, is, is that the church, rather, is totally dependent on Christ for its life. He's the head of the church. Without Him, there's no life. J.B. Lightfoot once put it like, Jesus is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power of the church the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and he says, the seat of its life. You know, too often we can be tempted to look to other things to give us life, spiritual life and vitality. And at times we drift that way. We look to the latest, greatest um, newest fad, the newest book, the newest song, the newest program, or whatever it is, thinking that that's going to give us life. But what we really need to remember is that our life comes from communing with Christ, the head. It's making sure that we're worshiping Him, gazing upon Him. What does Paul say? He says that in everything He might be preeminent. That's, that's what we need to do. We need to exalt Christ in every way. Imagine this little bitty congregation in Colossae gathering in Philemon's house and they're hearing these words for the first time. And they've just heard Christ is the one who gives life to the whole universe. And then Paul turns around and says, and oh, by the way, he's the one that's giving life to your little bitty congregation. He's sustaining you. He's given you all that you need to thrive, all that you need to flourish, all that you need for salvation, all that you need for sanctification, all that you need to be fruitful and to fulfill the mission that I've given you. It's all found in Jesus Christ. Well, what do we do here in, whom, in light of who Christ is? Well, I think Paul is right. We want to give him first place in everything. Amen? Everything. First place in our families. First place in our marriages. First place in our careers, our jobs. First place in, in our mission and ministry here at the church. We want to give him first place in our time. First place with our talents. First place in our treasures. First place in how we entertain ourselves. First place in the small things. First place in eating and drinking so that whatever we do, we're doing this for the glory of Christ. First place in our worship. I'd simply ask you today, what other place could such an amazing Savior have? in your life. 
Lord, please open our eyes to see the glory of Christ, that he might have preeminence in everything. And for those who might be here today who don't know him, Lord, open their eyes to see how the great gift that Jesus is, what he has come to do. May they humble themselves and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. May our singing in these moments be our, the confession of our lives that we'd rather have Jesus than anything. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.